If laughter is the best medicine, how do we use it to cure the cancer of racism, to close the wounds of hate, without flatlining? My guest, friend, comedian, writer, actor, director, podcaster, mother, ladies and gentlemen, the only person I know to sustain a mime-related injury, Nagin Farsad, right now on Friends of Hate. Welcome to season two of Friends and Neighbors, a Wagner Brothers podcast in which we talk with real people about how they're cultivating depth and simplicity in an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today we're joined by my pal, Nagin Farsad. First, I gotta pause to say that Christopher and I have lined up a truly cool season of brand new episodes featuring deep and simple conversations with people like Death, Sex, and Money host Anna Sale, misinformation superhero Anya Kerr, Hint CEO Kara Golden, and more. So please tap that subscribe button right now, act fast. And while you're at it, please consider leaving a comment and sharing the program with a friend. It, it could really help, so, so thank you. On with our program. I first met Nagin Farsad in the MTV newsroom 13 or so years ago. She was a writer for a show called Daily Detox, which as I recall, was a bizarre news recap with a very healthy budget for puppets and plush. Now, at the time, Chris and I were a bit stuck with our documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me. We'd shot most of the key interviews, but hadn't quite found our way through to the finished film. So when I learned that Nagin had recently premiered her own first documentary, Nerdcore Rising, at the South by Southwest Film Festival, I became Mr. 20 Questions, and I've been asking him ever since. When I discovered how thoughtful, smart, and duh, funny she was, I recruited her immediately into our annual holiday benefit, which was an early aughts thing where my singer-songwriter friends and I, we got together, we recorded some songs, we made a music video, and then we played a big holiday gala, all for charity. So picture this, my musician pal, uh, Chris Abbott, New York One reporter, Roger Clark, Nagin and myself in a Viacom conference room trying to create a viral video. You don't need to picture it, here are Four seconds. Okay, lightning round, Roger. Please finish this lyric. Silent night. Holy night and last Christmas. I gave you my heart. I believe he's ready. Yes, I believe he is. And that's all you're gonna get because it wasn't that funny, but bless them for trying to funny up my script. Despite that, Nagin has gone on to immeasurable greatness. She's a regular on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She has her own weekly podcast called Fake the Nation. Nagin's given a TED Talk. She is a TED Fellow. She wrote a book called How to Make White People Laugh and wrote, directed, starred in her own romantic comedy. And last month, Nagin's animated superhero doppelganger, Meredith the Mind Taker, premiered on Adult Swim's Bird Girl. You know, Mr. Rogers tells us that our job in life is to help people realize how rare and valuable each one of us really is, no matter where we're from, no matter what we look like, and no matter what color our glasses are. Do you remember how we met? Yes, we met at MTV. It was like my first ever writing job. It's funny because there was like, what, five of us and two of us were women and then the other three writers were gay men. It was just not at all like demographically what I, you know, what I t was told writers rooms would look like or anything yeah. like that. And I remember feeling it was my first time in life when I realized like I really shouldn't stop myself from sharing ideas 
right. because I'm embarrassed, because the idea right. might be just terrible. If you're not throwing stuff out there, there's nothing to build on, even if you discard it. Right. And also, I think the funny thing about you in that job was that you were like uh, open to at like everything. You know, the show we did for you guys was so wacky. Yeah. And you guys just seemed to be like, I want to say it was like a writer's room that was unusual for a first time writer's room. You move fast, you make lots of stuff, you're iterative, you seem to apply lessons. But we were trying to bring in a culture of testing, you know, like right. just not being afraid to try things. And if it didn't work, just try something different, which right. was not the norm because everything was supposed to be scripted and quadruple copy edited and polished, which is weird because that's not how you think of MTV, but that's a, kind of where it had gotten. For me, MTV had this like status, like because it's something I grew up on, you know what I mean? It's because it was yeah. like, oh, where did you learn about the cool music when you were a teenager, or like a, in, in, in middle school, you know? I was like learning about it on 120 minutes. Yeah. Definitely watching MTV when I wasn't allowed to and all that stuff. And so to be there and then to be in an environment where we were just, just being totally crazy. I heard that you were making a movie or you had just made a movie, but I was so excited by the idea that you seemed to share this DNA that was like, well, we'll just do it. Right. Let's just do it, right? <laughs> and I was like, this is someone who's done it. You made it relatable. You made it seem manageable. You shared your intel. You didn't, you weren't annoyed by me, you know? Oh my God, right. no, of course not. So I made this movie called Nerdcore Rising and yeah. I made it like with truly no idea. I wasn't a film major. I had gone to graduate school for African-American studies and public policy, yeah. right? You know, because you need both of those to be a comedian. Yeah. When I decided to make a movie, I truly did barely knew where the record button was on a camera. Yeah. Like I didn't know anything about lighting. I didn't know, I didn't know anything, but I do think I just knew like what would make a good story, you know? And that was just from like years of doing stand-up. It was such a crazy boot camp and then I convinced so many people that like this wasn't going to be a catastrophe you know so I think I was probably excited to share it with you just because I was so stunned that it worked out <laughs> you know what I mean one of the things that I see as a through line to your work to get a little Elvis Mitchell on you yes please is community mm -hmm. you're you understand the value of being a part of a group that is at least best as I can tell, endeavoring to elevate each other, not trying to eviscerate and win, but to be like, hey, you know, if we're all in this together, this is going to rise and this is much more fun. Right. Like at the end of the day, I just like enjoy people. I love the idea that we can all be norm in our version of Cheers. Cheers was out when I was a little kid nice. and I don't remember anything about it, but norm. And then everyone would say norm when he walked into the bar. Yeah, for sure. My parents just did not monitor what I watched on television. So who knows if I was allowed to watch that. But I always remember thinking as a kid, that seems so great. Like everybody yeah. like knows him and considers him a friend at this one random bar. What is a bar also? I'm eight. Yeah, right. And so <laughs> I feel like community is just a big part of everything because I think it also just keeps me alive, just makes me feel better. It strikes me as it relates almost as a opposing force to it sounds like some of the experience you had as a younger person right where you were exactly the opposite from what i read and heard in your comedy and your ted talk and so forth that you were other mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so it kind of stands to reason that you would be working on yeah. cultivating and building really to undo that you know the sort of viciousness of that that other force 
Well, shit, that's a good observation. Yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> I haven't exactly put that together myself. Dr. Wagner is in. <laughs> I'm canceling therapy this week. I don't need it. Yeah, I was like a little Iranian American Muslim girl. My earliest memory is of my brother getting beat up in school. He was 13 years older than me, so he was in middle school and I was very little. And one of my earliest memories is him getting beaten up because because he was Iranian or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then later on as well, but like specifically in the 80s, it was pretty hardcore. And so we ended up moving to California and I ended up being around so many Mexicans, which was great because I sort of blended it, you know what I mean? Just like I'm ambiguously ethnic, you know, throw me into a Mexican context and they're like, yeah, she works. <laughs> In college, there weren't as many Mexican kids where I went to school. So then I learned. Not at Cornell. I went to Cornell. And it's like, I just looked at these sort of like minority groups and I'd be like, can I join you guys? And at Cornell, I started doing a lot of stuff like learning about African-American cinema and, you mm -hmm. know, history, civil rights and all that stuff. And I just thought that what I am is just sort of adjacent to these larger minority groups where there's like a clear definition of their struggle and their progress and their wins and their losses. And so I just wanted to sort of be close to that, you know, because it was so clear in the American popular imagination and clear to me. So that's kind of where I landed with all that stuff. Tell me the first time, if you remember this, that you got a laugh. Up until high school, I was just very quiet, very shy. I was really focused on academics and I continued to be very focused on academics, but I then realized I could be focused on academics without being quiet and shy. Yeah. And so I ended up doing drama in high school. I was a vice president of the theater company, but I was also president of the yes, debate team. So I was a very special crossover dork. <laughs> And I remember when I got cast in my first ever musical, it was Once Upon a Mattress, and I played not Kitchen Wench number one or Kitchen Wench number two. Uh, those were the coveted Kitchen Wench roles, obviously. I played Kitchen Wench number three. And, nice. you know, there are no small parts, only small actors. I had to, like, run on stage. I was running away from someone. Looking back on it, it was like I was running yeah. away from a man yeah. who was gross. Yeah. But I did it in a funny way. And I got a huge laugh. And I just remember being like, I'm a dictator and now I have power. Like, you know what I mean? I just felt yeah. like this is the strong, this is the Mao Zedong stuff. This is like what changes societies right here is this yeah. feeling. And I just really loved getting a laugh. It just felt like I could say anything in that moment after the laugh and I'd have everyone's attention. How did you figure out what that magic was in that first laugh and how to replicate it? I'll tell you what's really ridiculous is that like after that first laugh, my next notable performance was a mime show. And I did a ridiculous, because this is when you're a teenager and you're just like, I just discovered poetry. Have you guys heard of poetry? You know yeah, what I mean? Right. Like, totally. you're like, I just discovered mime. Did you know that the human body could like pretend like there are objects in the room? And I, <laughs> so I was so enamored with mime. And I did this like ridiculous mime show where I talked about the death of my grandfather or something. I didn't talk. I did it all through mime, obviously. And I did this emotional performance that culminated in a funeral or something crazy. And the audience, in my memory, they were in tears. And I oh, got man. a standing ovation. Roses. Roses, brava, you know what I mean? The whole thing. And I turned around and I, and I walked off stage and I forgot that the stage was raked. And there was a huge step and I fell off the stage and broke my arm. Thank you. No, you didn't. What I had was 
not a sports-related injury. Folks, it was a mime-related injury. I hadn't thought of it in terms of comedy before, but it really is like a superpower, right? Because you disarm. I mean, I think something's happening, right? Like biologically with the like parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system, like you're getting little squirts of dopamine or something because comedy does like bonding and all these great neurological things, right? To what degree are you cognizant of that dynamic? That's a good question because I think some of the things I did, like I made this movie called The Muslims Are Coming, where I went around the country with a bunch of Muslim American comedians and we did shows in places like Alabama, Tennessee, like Idaho, Arizona, you know what I mean? Places where they just, there's an abundance yeah. of just Muslims just running around and everybody loves them. And this is 2012, like the height of the Islamophobia, like yeah. birther controversy, you know, 2013. We called the tour The Muslims Are coming but one of the dopamine hits in that experience was that we would do these shows free stand-up shows and people would come out and, and we made the shows free so there would be no barrier to entry then we would t talk to people after the show we would stay around town and like kind of stop people in their tracks in the middle of a town square or whatever and do these like kind of street actions you we did a thing like you know ask a muslim and like you could just come and ask us any question or whatever if i could talk to a stranger and be like yeah their first Muslim interaction or their most positive Muslim interaction or whatever it was is because of the imagery around Muslims we don't normally associate someone like me with Islam, right? And so my thing was just like, let's change the stereotype. Totally. And have Islam just be like, every time someone thinks Muslim, they're just like, oh, like that girl with red glasses who's a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be a great stereotype instead of the one that we're saddled with? I think that also it was the comedy and it was like the reaching people through comedy and having it, inviting people to the comedy and having it be like a party. Yeah. Like, I always want people to feel invited to my party. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're like walking into the sort of bear's den. Yeah. And basically kind of saying, there's nothing in my hands. I come in peace. And then you make us laugh, which you know makes everybody just relax. But there's this shared humanity of just like, dude, don't be stupid. I'm just a person too. I refuse to believe that there isn't something like between us. And by us, yeah. I mean me and literally yeah. everybody. That's right. <laughs> and that thing that's between us is this like lovely, we're in this, you're my neighbor. And I mean that in the global yeah. sense, you're my neighbor. Yeah. A lot of what we want, you know, is the same and all that kumbaya shit that sounds so dumb, but I really like, you know, really believe 100%. it, you know, and it's- it, Why we're and, pals, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny with the Mr. Rogers thing is that I grew up on that and I think that really, and I, I, I know you made this movie about him and so I'm not just saying it because you made a movie, but like I really do think there was something to- Mr. Rogers and me specifically, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like to me, that's like the apex of connection. Yeah. And he did it through this kind of mild manner or whatever. And I, yeah. and my shit is like, I mean, look, like sometimes my stuff is just raunchy it's and totally in a, yeah. There's poop, there's puke, there's sex, there's I mean, STDs. Yeah, I'm not trying to be appropriate, but I do feel like everyone's my neighbor. How do you think about your own laugh. Another thing I wondered as I've watched your work, because you really seem to know when to use it. I think using my own laugh started with podcasting. What I decided with podcasting was that this is a conversation that's happening, you know, on my podcast, Fake the Nation, it's a conversation with me and a rotating cast of comedians. It's two comedians every panel. So there's only three people in the room 
but I still want it to feel like a party, you know? And also like comedians love to like reserve their laugh and like not be honest about what they find funny. Save it for when it's really earned. Yeah, exactly. Like when it's just off the walls, just like, oh, this is in the top 1%, like then I'll laugh if the joke is that good. But I was like, let's make this a party. Like, I'm laughing. You know what I mean? This is fun. Yeah. And so I feel like that. And it's funny because like I get, you know, you mentioned that uh, that I do Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me um, on NPR. And like I get so many messages about about like my laughter. For me, it's not just about doing jokes. It's about enjoying the thing so nice. that everyone gets to enjoy the thing. Yeah. And I also think enjoying things is like a decision and one that I just make, you know, Yeah. at the beginning of every show. It's like, I'm just going to enjoy this. What is the Uh, point of anything if I can't? That's such a good lesson for me. Thank you. I mean, and probably for a lot of us, right? I've been thinking a lot about my singer-songwriter career. It's interesting how it's informed my present, even though my present, it's not really the primary driver at all, but in some ways... If I hadn't been on stage for 25 years, like you in musicals and all that stuff, I don't know that I could do whatever it is that I am doing. I rarely enjoy the thing until lately, because I'm usually literally criticizing myself in real time. Right. It's like I'm other from everyone else because I think I'm not good enough, right? So I'll be like, oh, I just hit a bum note in the moment that I hit the bum note. Yes. You know? I think this is a battle that 99% of human beings like have. And it's sad because people, you know, you may not even realize that when you're live performing, you'll have a horrible thought and be self-critical while you're yeah. also, you know, playing an instrument or singing or doing a sh- joke. Like in that moment, there's 17 conversations with your head about how horrible you are. And I think also laughing and actually listening cajoles me out of that a little That's bit. Yeah. So it's almost yeah. like my own little self-criticism trick or something talk about a little bit because you this it is my dream to do what you've done with third street blackout first it's a romantic comedy yeah right? it's like you my favorite genre it, you directed it you star in it it's called third street blackout because that's where i was during the blackout yeah. in after hurricane sandy in 2012 and i had romantic shenanigans with the guy this was the, it's based on my romantic shenanigans i was dating this guy and blah 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 i mean let's be honest that relationship did not work out <laughs> but it made for a good movie i think one of the things that i've done always with like filmmaking is humiliate myself with requests yeah. and so in this case it was just like hey janine garofalo uh, you've, you know, seen me on this comedy circuit. I'm a nothing to you. Would you be in my movie? Like, hey, John Hodgman, you know me from the, I don't, you don't know me. Would you be in my <laughs> movie? So I, I managed to get people like Ed Weeks from the Mindy Project. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the things that every filmmaker at any level probably will say is that you have to humiliate yourself a little bit because what you want is so ridiculous. In my first film, I got Weird Al Yankovic. And I remember, like, I wrote him, his manager, an email being like, I would love to interview him for this movie, blah, blah, blah. And manager was like, no, thank you. I was even surprised that I got a response. I wrote back to this manager the most 
touching. Like this was the lifetime movie of emails that I wrote this guy of like, this would change my life. He is such an icon, all of this stuff, which obviously true, but I just like, just fully humiliated myself to get this interview and I got it. He was moved enough to accept this interview. I'm also struck by this, which again is a hallmark of, I think your work is this idea of just saying, well, what's the harm in asking? Yes. It's that like Andy Rooney thing, like, hey guys, let's put on a show. Like, and I, it's, it's, a, it's something I really appreciate in you. I remember, I also wanted to get Prince Paul from De La Soul in my, that first movie. I noticed that he was DJing at like one of these big clubs or whatever in New York City. And I went to the show and it was like, uh, like a hot ticket. Everyone's there, it's packed. I had a hard time getting in, you know, that whole scene. Yeah. I wrote a hand written sign and I said, I have a question for you, Prince Paul. And I held it up in front of the DJ booth. <laughs> I mean, this is like out of love actually. Anyways, I stood in front of the DJ booth with this sign and he of course felt sad for me and was just like, come over, you know? And I said, "What? can you give me your email? I would love to ask you to be in my film. And again, he did it, you know? Yeah. That is, again, it's like that, like that level of like, it's holding up a sign and that whole thing. I mean, it's, it is so embarrassing. And to get like the, the, the well of like shame that comes out of doing something like that, it's real. You know, it's funny. I think of it as courage, oh, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's probably both. I mean, yeah. and they're probably related, right? But you yeah. have to like step out on a ledge and be vulnerable. And it's courageous to be vulnerable. And it's vulnerable to say, I like something, to be positive, to be constructive, to have confidence that we can keep making progress. Yeah. And I think that's what being a stand-up comedian does for, for stand-up comedians, because we're just nothing but vulnerable. Mm. I think of everything that I do, it's the hardest thing. Like Because you got nothing but down. your brain, your wits, a mic in your hand. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I did my first, we're recording this in the pandemic. I don't know what it, when we're releasing it, but we're recording this in April of the pandemic, 2021. And... I did my first ever indoor show last night and I was so nervous. I mean, I was, I had been doing outdoor shows. I'd been doing like a lot of rooftop shows and stuff like that, but being mm. in a club, like an old school, like straight up New York comedy club, one of my favorite clubs in New York. And I was so nervous I bet. Yeah. and it went great. And the audience, you know, these people are like people that want to live, right? Like they want to enjoy, starving. they want to experience yeah. They're starving. So it was super, super fun. And it feels like climbing Mount Everest every time you can do it. I mean, that's what yeah. it, it really does. And it also consistently just makes me feel like an amateur. There's nothing I do that makes me feel more like an amateur than stand-up comedy. And I've been doing yeah. it for years. Give us like a little known Peter Sagal uh, factoid. <laughs> okay, this is actually a funny Peter Sagal factoid because it's only like a pandemic thing. Is <laughs> it during the pandemic in the middle of the show, he, he keeps a kettle at his desk where he records the show and then heats, boils water and makes himself a tea in the middle of the show because his throat gets yeah. brought and like, so he needs to like revive his throat. And it's funny because he didn't need to do it when we were doing live shows. It's like a pandemic thing that's developed that I think is really charming and That is cute. funny. Maybe a humidifier in the home would help. I mean, you know what? I'm gonna recommend that to him next time. Do you have a nemesis on the panels? Is there someone who you're like, uh, I just like, uh, I know 
Like when Faith Saley or some is on the show, I'm not gonna win. Right. Even like Mo Rocca, like he just sort of waltzes in and wins. Like most of yeah. the time, when the real like uh, vets are on the show, I'm just like, all right, you guys have like 12 years on me. You know what I mean? Not that anyone cares about winning, but even when you do win the thing, which oh, is sure. by the way, you win nothing. There isn't an actual prize, but it still feels like a little bonnet in your cap or whatever. But let's talk about your show. I mean, 243 episodes, again, years and years, right? I started this podcast during the 2016 primaries. I started Fake the Nation. And I remember because the producers and stuff like, God, we're talking about Trump a lot. And I was like, you know what, guys? Once the general's done, we won't have to talk about him anymore. Let's just get through this time. I had to put myself on like a strict news <laughs> consumption regime. Yeah, like, totally. you know, where I would like only consume a lot of news for a certain number of days of the week. And then I would totally go off of it. Um, for a certain number of days, because it became really, 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 really too much, especially the year that we had him for the pandemic. Yeah. Because it was just like, oh, um, mortality-defying event and a horrible president at the same time. So that, I, I think, just for my personal health was a little tough, like, mental health was a little tough. I removed all of the notifications on my phone, like, I didn't oh, get any news yeah. notifications, all that stuff. I had to do all of that stuff to kind of like make it through. And now it's so interesting because I'll go days without thinking about Biden, right? Yeah, like, yeah. are you thinking about Biden every day? Like, yeah. no, but this is how it should be. You're not supposed to think of the president every day. He's supposed yeah. to kind of silently be doing a thing. Part of the way I feel like some kind of currency and recency with you is because I see you on the social medias, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. all of a sudden I'm like, wait, that's a human I didn't recognize. That is a new human. And she I seems know. to have had a hand in creating it. So first, do I have this correct? Second, um, can you give us some detail as you feel comfortable? And third, how does it affect your work? You know, and I don't just mean getting it done, but I'm a dad, right? You know, I got two little girls. I think you met yeah. Maggie at one of the screenings. Yes. But it has a profound change on who you are and how you think of the world. So my kids too, and it makes work life, I mean, a thousand times more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> oh right? Because again, because of this thing in our country where we just sort of think like, you know, babies between zero and four are sort of self-cleaning ovens and we don't have to like do any kind of like plan for them as a society. So that's made it tough. Like just the childcare component, how expensive yeah. it is, how relentless it is, like, you know, how inflexible it is. It's so difficult. And it's made me really appreciate, I mean, if I go back and think about all of the things that you did while also having a full-time job that was also creative and required a lot of thought and then also make movies on top of that, to me, it's like, that's nuts. <laughs> because to do all that with kids. So now that I'm doing like that level of impossibility, I feel a little Wonder Woman-ish, you know, just on yeah. a daily basis, like, folks, you have no idea. This is insane. 20-year-olds, yeah. are you listening? This is out of control. So I do sort of feel like every parent in America deserves some sort of award. But, you know, it's also, you know, hey, she's great for material, am I right? <laughs> more poop jokes. More poop jokes. So many more poop jokes. Laughter is powerful medicine. The simple act of smiling trades the stress-induced cortisol in our bloodstreams for dopamine, oxytocin, endorphins, and together they reduce anxiety and inspire connection, affection, attention, and motivation. We wake up 
and we open up. And when we're open and awake, we see, as Fred reminds us, as Nagin shows us that as different as we are from one another, as unique as each one of us is, we are much more the same than we are different. And maybe that's part of the care we need to cure the world's disease, one punchline at a time. <laughs> Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download our podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com.